What do you do? Maybe I shouldn't ask this question of this audience, actually. It sounded better on paper. What do you do when no one's watching? Um, <laughs> how would you feel, though, if you did know that somebody uh, was watching, and in fact, they'd always been watching, they'd watched your every move, your every deed? Would you feel comforted? Would you feel terrified? Would you feel ashamed? Mel Moth, you wouldn't. Mel Moth is the, the loneliest being in the world. Mel Moth is the watcher. And Helen Franklin is a translator living in Prague, and she slowly comes to believe that Mel Moth might be watching her. But what has Mel Moth seen, and what has Helen done? Please welcome the Savoy's newest writer in residence and author of The Essex Serpent, Sarah Perry. <laughs> very exciting and also quite scary. Yes. Um, have you decided which scary bit you're going to read? I have. I have two, if okay. I may, yes, um, may, of escalating terrifyingness, which is a word because I said it. Um, would you like me to begin? Yes, please. Um, uh, in creative writing courses, they always tell you you can't have a prologue. They can get bent. I'll have a prologue if I want one. <laughs> uh, so a short prologue and then the first chapter and then another very short bit. J.A. Hoffman, care of the National Library of the Czech Republic, December 2016. My dear Dr. Prejean, how deeply I regret that I must put this document in your hands and so make you the witness of what I have done. Many times you said to me, Joseph, what are you writing? What have you been doing all this time? My friend, I would not tell you because I have been the watchman at the door. But now my pen is dry, the door is open, and something's waiting there that will turn what small regard you have for me to ruins. I can bear that well enough since I never deserved your regard, but I am afraid for you, because beyond the threshold, only one light shines, and it's far more dreadful than the dark. Ten days have passed, and all the while I've been thinking only of my fault, my fault, my most grievous fault. I do not sleep. I feel her eyes on me, and with hope and dread I turn, but find I'm all alone. I walk through the city in the dark and think I hear her footsteps and find that I'm holding out my hand. But she offered me her hand once, and I doubt she'll offer it again. I leave this document in the custody of the library with instructions that it should be delivered to you when next you're at your desk. Forgive me, she is coming. J.A. Hoffman. <laughs> Part one. Look, it is winter in Prague. Night is rising in the mother of cities and over her thousand spires. Look down at the darkness around your feet in all the lanes and alleys as if it were a soft black dust swept there by a broom. Look at the stone apostles on the old Charles Bridge and at all the blue-eyed jackdaws on the shoulders of St. John of Nepomuk. Look, she is coming over the bridge, head bent down to the whitening cobblestones. Helen Franklin, 42, Neither short nor tall, her hair neither dark nor fair. On her feet, boots which serve from November to March and her mother's steel watch on her wrist. A table salt glitter of hard snow falling on her sleeve, her shoulder, her neat coat belted as colourless as she is, nine years worn. 
What might commend so drab a creature to your sight when overhead the low clouds split and the upturned bowl of a silver moon pours milk out on the river? Nothing. Nothing, that is, but this. These hours, these long minutes of this short day must be the last when she knows nothing of Melmoth, when thunder is just thunder and a shadow only darkness on the wall. If you could tell her now, step forward, take her wrist and whisper. Perhaps she'd pause, turn pale, and in confusion fix her eyes on yours. Perhaps look at the lamp-lit castle high above the vault of her and down at white swans sleeping on the riverbank, then turn on her half-inch heel and beat back through the coming crowd. But, oh, it's no use. She'd only smile, impassive, half amused, shake you off and go on walking home. Helen Franklin pauses where the bridge meets the embankment. Trams rattle on up to the National Theatre where down in the pit the oboes suck their reeds and the first violin taps her bow three times against the music stand. It's two weeks past Christmas, but the botanical tree in the old town square turns and turns and plays one final pleasing strain of Strauss and women from Hoven Hartlepool clasp paper cups of steaming wine. Down Carlovy Lane comes a scent of ham and wood smoke, of sugar-studded dough burnt over coals. An owl on a gloved wrist may be addressed with the deference due to its feathers, then gingerly held for a handful of coins. It is all a stage set, contrived by ropes and pulleys. It is pleasant enough for an evening self-deceit, but no more. <coughs> Helen is not deceived, nor has she ever been. The pleasures of Bohemia are not for her. She has never stood and watched the chiming of the astronomical clock whose maker was blinded by pins before he could chain the city by building a better device elsewhere, has never exchanged her money for a set of nesting dolls in the scarlet strip of an English football team, does not sit idly overlooking the vault of her at dusk. Guilty of a crime for which she fears no proper recompense can ever be made, she is in exile and willingly serves her full life term, having been her own jury and judge. Thank you very much. I have another brief piece to read, if you'll forgive me. Helen is given a document, and the document is written by a man called Josef Edelmar Hoffman. He begins the document, my name is Josef Edelmar Hoffman, this was my father's name and the name of my father's father. And I'm just going to read you a short extract from it because it introduces Melmoth. Hoffman recounts his youth, and then he says, one incident alone from that part of my life I recall with perfect clarity. My walk to school took me on a narrow track past a field of wheat where often I saw the farmer picking stones by hand in winter. Now, this farmer had a habit of leaving out some form of seat in the field, which I never once saw him use. In winter, a wooden crate. In summer, a bale of hay. I even once saw a small dining chair set out in the harrowed field, but I never saw it again. My curiosity at that time was sluggish, my intelligence mean. A thousand other wonders must have passed me by, but this one thing puzzled me. Encountering him one morning on the path, I screwed up my courage and asked what purpose these empty seating places served. Why, it is for she, of course, he said. He looked for a time at the stack of logs placed against the wall of an outhouse 20 yards from where we stood. 
A handful of jackdaws were pecking at the soil. Then he gripped me by the shoulder and I could see a milky quality to his eyes. It is for the wanderer, he said, for the witness, for she who is cursed to walk from Jerusalem to Constantinople, from Ireland to Kazakhstan, she who is eternally lonely, who is excommunicated from the grace of God and the company of men, she who watches, whose eyes are upon you in your guilt and transgression, from whom God has withdrawn even the respite of sleep. He spoke like some mad preacher who goes from door to door with pamphlets in one hand and a tin cup for begged coins in the other. I left him with the idea that some damned soul required that he should leave out for her a resting place in case she should happen by. Later that same day, I lingered after school to speak to my teacher, Herr Schroeder, and ask if he too had seen that single chair set out in a harrowed wheat field. It was just an old myth, he said, and one he was surprised I didn't already know. It is nothing but a story told to children to keep them in line, he said. Did your mother never take you on her knee and tell you that Melmoth is watching? My mother had never told me any stories, I said. It began like this, he said. You know, as your Bible has taught you, that a company of women came to Jesus' tomb and found it empty, and the stone rolled away, and right there in the garden they saw the risen Son of God. But among them was one who denied that she had ever seen the resurrected Christ. Because of it, she is cursed to wander the earth without home or respite until Christ comes again. So she is always watching always seeking out everything that's most distressing and most wicked in a world which is surpassingly wicked and full of distress. In doing so, she bears witness when there is no witness and hopes to achieve her salvation. Could he have said all this to me, a boy with whom he'd never exchanged more than a handful of words? I think so, for I remember it well and how he ran a finger in the furrow of the scar that ran from ear to collarbone. Well... That's the legend, he said, and this is her name, Melmoth the Witness, or Melmotta, or Melmotka, depending on the town where you were born. But what you must remember is this, that she is lonely, with an eternal loneliness which will end only when our world ends and she receives her pardon. So she comes to those at the lowest ebb of life, and those she chooses feel her eyes on them, they look up, they see her watching, and she holds out her arms and says, take my hand, I've been so lonely. <laughs> so not ever taking that hand. <laughs> Um, so Melmoth, she's like, she's like, she sees all the pain, she's like the anti-Oprah, basically. She's, Absolutely, she's, she's, yeah, yeah. She sees all the pain, she does nothing about it. Yeah. She, is, she, is she a ghost? I was, you know, reading it, thinking, is she a ghost? Is she a legend? Is she a figment of people's imagination? Is she some of these things, all of these things? I mean, I, I want to talk about the nature of Melmoth. Well, I, I'm really excited about books that function as a real dialogue between the reader and the writer, so that what the reader thinks is as much a construct of the book as everything that the writer says. So right until the end, that is kept in tension. Is she real? 
Yeah. <laughs> is it a supernatural horror novel? Is it a construct of the guilt that Helen Franklin is feeling? Is it an old legend which has gathered a certain amount of flesh and bones? What is it? Mm. And I'm really excited by the idea of readers coming to their own conclusions and then in some way having the rug sort of ripped out from underneath them. And I'm also really interested in, in a sort of secular world, how we deal with these questions of guilt and redemption. If we don't have a redeemer and no prospect of redemption, what do we do when we fail and when we transgress? Who is watching if there is no God who can see? So, you know, it's, it's a light, it's a light evening. Light, light evening. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was thinking a lot about your upbringing as, as I was reading it. As, as, a, as a strict Baptist, the, st the stance would have been that it was faith Faith only, not, mm. not deeds, right? Yeah. That was enough. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, the, you know, the, the Reformation theology of sola fide, of, you know, by faith alone are you saved is something... You know, I could recite the five points of Calvinism from the age of about five, probably before I knew the colours of the rainbow. And, and I'm sort of now effectively post-religious, but I'm, I will never be... Oh, what do you mean post-religious? Well, I'm, not, I'm post -religious. not an atheist. Yeah, so I'm not an atheist. I, I think I'm probably a Christian, um, but I don't worship in churches because I get terribly cross with everybody and, and want to storm out. Yeah. Um, I should just start my own church. You'd all come with me. You should just start your own church. I would be amazing <laughs> in clerical robes, clearly. Um, so... But I'm very much soaked in the idea of... So the concept of original can sin can be benevolent in a way, yeah. which is, it's really awful to think that we're all sinners, but the, the flipped coin is that, well, we all screw up, and it can be made okay again. So I feel like in my post-structured religion state, yeah. I sort of, I've lost the damning sense of you're all damned, but I've kept the sense that we can all do terrible things. None of us are exempt from frailty or transgression, mm -hmm. and that there will always be a possibility of redemption. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does make, it does make sense. Um, the characters in this book have committed, some of them, some truly horrific yeah. acts, um, and really not easy to read about. Yeah. Really not easy to read about. And I imagine, I, want, I know for you, really hard to research. I yeah. mean, you've, you've got the Armenian Holocaust yeah. in there, um, and you've got World War Two and yeah. Prague, and the, which I, a city I didn't understand. I didn't yeah. know what had happened at the end. Yeah. Um, how did you decide which of those darknesses to, to, to focus on, and how did you cope? I was really struck by the concept of bearing witness, which is something that Primo Levi, who wrote the, obviously wrote the first Holocaust survivor memoir, he said, you know, as long as someone is bearing witness, that, mm. that's what he needed, because we can't, we can't make it better, mm. but we can watch, we can have the courage to watch. And two things happened. One of them was um, the drowning of that Syrian child um, on, a, on a Greek beat, and um, I became very angry that people were retweeting the picture of this child, and then I thought, well, why are you angry? Why do you think that you shouldn't see this? And it set off this chain of thoughts of, as if, you know how children think that if you can't see them, you know, that you're not there. And I thought, this is a childlike thing I'm doing. Well, if I, if I don't see a drowned Syrian toddler, it's not happening. But it's still happening. It's happening all the time. And so Melmoth began to coalesce in this idea of the witness who would see everything. Um, and then in order to carry that out, I thought what I would do would be to write about areas of history to which there have been fewer witnesses. The Armenian genocide is 
is still denied. Mm. Um, officially, officially, still denied, yeah, still denied in um, and and denied in Turkey vehemently, actually. Um, and I wrote about the expulsion of German-speaking Czechs at the end of the Second World War, which um, was something I knew nothing. People about. don't know about this that ethnic Germans were interred in concentration camps. They were emptied of their Jewish inmates and then the Germans were put in and there were terrible, terrible things happened. And it was really hard, as you know, you were there when I was, when I was doing it at Gladstones and you and I were both sort of dig digging deep into the most horrendous stuff and having ethical yeah. qualms about turning this into fiction and, and where did we stand as witnesses? So yeah. I don't know how I did it is the answer. I had a lot of nightmares. We were, we were both staying at Gladstones Library, which is the residential library in Wales where Gladstone uh, took a wheelbarrow of all his papers and books and, and the library was built and you can you can pick out books that Gladstone um, has scribbled in the margins yeah. of and um, it's an incredible place and it has rooms attached and you, you, you can sleep there and stay there and we just both happened to be there at the same time and both, both, be, writing <laughs> up, both be writing about really dark Shaking. shit um, and we see each other in the evening for sort of thimble sherry going oh should we watch an episode of The Crown you know it was <laughs> It, it was. It was. It, it was, was. It's just awful. And, it was that and harrowing. There's something very old-fashioned and very unfashionable and very Victorian about the idea of the novelist having any kind of ethical duty to truth and to morality. But I will never. You know, I was born in 1860, so I can't. <laughs> I can't escape. You're looking my, great by the way. Virgin's blood. Um, <laughs> and so. You know, I can't escape that idea that we do have responsibilities to the readership and to the history that we're talking about. How do you write atrocities in a way which is compassionate and wise and bearing witness without being prurient or descending into torture porn? Thank God for my agent, who at one point said, does the policeman burning to death have to take up three sides of A4? <laughs> and I cut, cut back some of the body horror. You know, you need someone to lift you out of your, your total immersion in this hell that we've made for ourselves yeah. and to make you able to deal with it in a kind of ethical way. Um, and Melmoth makes people, makes people look, and I'm really interested in this idea, idea of bearing witness and what it means to be seen, because on some level, it's a kind of validation, isn't yeah. it? The people who are witnessed by her, are, they're, they're terrified, but they're also excited. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so this is um, something that's really exciting to me, is to not cast anyone, even a legend character, as being either wholly good or wholly evil, because this is not empirically sound a thing to do as an author. Um, and so, actually, what Melmoth does is say, I saw you, I saw what you did. No one else would want you, but I do, because I'm really lonely. And so she She's doesn't... She's like the worst person in the playground, <laughs> she ever. Is, she is. Yeah. Um, and so she, she sees suffering and she sees sadness and she, off she offers a version of judgment that is benevolent in a kind of really creepy way. I'm very excited by monsters in fiction that are seductively evil. Yeah. So Milton, Satan, Dracula, you know, these characters who are kind of, they both repel and attract at the same time, which is, of course, the core of the Gothic, which is that you're really scared, but you also can't stop reading. So, so I know that you spent some time in Prague. You were one of the UNESCO writers in yeah. residence there. How long were you there? What was it? Two months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at the beginning of January, uh, January, February 2016. So did you know that, that you were going to write about that or did you yeah. find you yeah. so? No, yeah, no, I knew. I was looking for another setting because I'm so tied to the east coast of England, born and brought up in Essex, living in Norwich, um, and, and I'm very sort of watery and there's reservoirs and drownings and all of that sort of thing. And I wanted to break out of being this kind no of... No more drownings. No more drownings. No more drownings. <laughs> Horror think. on dry land. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I wanted to challenge my form and challenge myself to write out of my 
comfort zone of these sort of little creepy English villages and the mists and, and all the rest yeah. of it, and to sort of develop as a writer. Um, and also to engage with the history of the 20th century in a way that's really immediate. So because of Prague's history and the war, it's literally under your feet in a way that it sort of feels a bit more distant here. Were people reluctant to talk to you about the kinds of stories you were trying to uncover when you were there? Totally. Yeah. I, I, so I'm, I, I don't want to um, sort of spoil the book for you, but as I'm sure many of you will know, there were lots of ethnic Germans in Czechoslovakia, and at the end of the Second World War, they were ethnically cleansed. So there are now no really German-speaking people in the Czech Republic. And the things that happened to them were exactly the things that happened in genocides, and it was really abysmal. Um, but history sort of slightly has glossed over it because Germans were the baddies. So it's not something that is sort of written about much. And I went on a tour to Terezin, a concentration camp, something that took me about two months of examining my conscience to work out whether a coach trip to a concentration camp was an ethical thing to do. Um, and on the coach, um, they gave us a tour of Prague on the way out, and, and the, the very, very well-educated, multilingual woman giving us the tour said something like, oh, and of course there's no Germans left in the Czech Republic. Now, anyway, if you look to your left, you will see the... You know, she knows, yeah. they do know, um, but it's very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. History is written by the victors, yeah. and, and we are very uncomfortable with nuance, we're very uncomfortable with moral complexity, mm -hmm. and the idea that people who were effectively Nazi collaborators still shouldn't really be burnt to death in the street um, is something thing that, if you think about it, everybody would agree with, but we don't want to think about it because life is much easier if it's black hats and white hats. In, as a reader, it's very complicated because I had very strong feelings about those characters and, you know, I, I'm presented with their humanity and I'm forced, as a reader, to witness yep. what is happening and think, how do I feel about it? Yep. Do I feel glad? Do I feel, do I feel sad? And it's, it's a very confronting particularly that moment that you described, um, you know, but it's a very confronting book. Um, I, I want to ask you about the, the, the whole section that's set in Manila. I have never read anything set in Manila. <laughs> um, so, and as far as I'm concerned, I'm never going to go there. It seems very sweaty, and yeah. your central character is bitten in her sleep by a cockroach. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty grim. It's, it's horrible. I, um, the first time I ever went abroad was at the age of 21 to be a missionary in a slum in Manila for six months. And that there was we a shock go. to the system, there we I go. tell you. Okay, um, and my husband, there. to this day, has a wonderful scar on his arm where he was bitten by a cockroach in the night and it turned into a tropical ulcer. I, I love this stuff. Sorry, close your ears if you're screaming. Tropical he ulcer? Could, he could clench his fist and pus would spurt. And oh! <laughs> oh! That's... It was amazing. That is amazing. It was really amazing. That so, must have been a bit of a... I mean, I wouldn't have wanted it to heal because it's so joyful. It was, it was a weird... It was very gothic. Real, I really it repelled that, and attracted, Yeah, repelled right? and attracted yeah. all at the Love same time. Stuff. Oh, so, God. And so the full immersion, to use a kind of Baptist... I want to see that star later. <laughs> um, is... It, the shock of being taken out of a little suburban yeah, town that. in Essex into, you know, um, we had no hot water, no running water, no flushing toilet, nowhere to cook. There were rats, um, the sewers flooded, and you would have to wade through sewage and rainwater, and a nappy and a dead rat would float by. Um, but it was also very, very beautiful. The natural world is very beautiful. And writing about... And this um, is where Helen goes. This is where Helen was as, as a yeah. youngster, yeah. And we'll um, keep what she did a secret, um, but she has some guilt attached to her time there. She should. Um, and so she should. Um, 
Not that I'm judgmental <laughs> in any way. I sound so much like my granny. Are then. you the she witness? Should. Is I, that why you're not? She should feel well. No, anyway. Um, and she, I did. It's, it's a great worry in this day and age uh, writing about foreign cultures because you mm. don't want to um, stereotype and you don't want to be crass. But that is very much written from the point of view of a shocked young English woman turning yeah. up in a in a very poor developing world country. And I think Manila has changed in the 25 years since I was there. Yeah. Was 15 years. How old am I? 40. 38, yeah. Eight, yeah. Two, one, yeah, 38. I don't know, I can't yes. remember. Anyway, it's changed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it, was, it was difficult. It was difficult. Yeah. One of the other things that struck me reading um, is that throughout, there are, many, there are many characters that suffer, there are many of them that suffer with, with illness or with injury, um, particularly the character in, in, in Manila, which is a horrendous um, a suffering there. And it made, it made me think about you and what you've been going through mm. and your your illness and how you have been managing that, and I wondered if, if that had that had seeped through into into your writing process. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the difference between the Essex Serpent and Melmoth is really striking. I think yeah. actually, because the Essex Serpent was written by a woman who is now dead, um, so a, a young woman who had never been ill and had never really suffered, and was full of sort of joy and optimism. And then um, Melmoth is written by me, <laughs> old and haggard and tired and in pain most days. <laughs> um, and I'm actually doing very very well, but I had developed an autoimmune disease. I had to have spinal surgery. I have chronic pain. Mm. and insomnia and stuff so um, the book was written during a period of fairly um, significant suffering and yeah. um, it's all good material what can I tell you um, so <laughs> everyone in it is in pain in terrible physical pain um, and I was high for, for a large proportion of writing the book. there is a lot in the book about fentanyl <laughs> there is yeah <laughs> very detailed descriptions of what it feels like yeah. to take yep, to be very honest, strong painkillers yeah. <laughs> yep but in, in, in writing about those characters having those experiences did that was it cathartic in any sense yeah. for you yeah it was absolutely I would think I would have actually gone deranged if I hadn't been able to write about it and I think all, all writers here and you will understand that need to sort of turn it into something good because otherwise you've just suffered and there's been no sort of um, positive outcome and actually I think if you have suffered very severe pain um, you either well it's quite traumatizing actually but um, it also makes you very compassionate so I'm now an, an terrible softy and if someone so much as mentions that they've barked their knee I kind of rummage around in my handbag for like the panoply of drugs that I tend to carry around with me because I can't bear it I cannot bear the idea of people being in pain because I've been in such pain that it sort of like tugs something out of me so so therefore I inflicted pain on my characters that doesn't make any sense well you did but you also uh, speaking you sound like Melmoth I mean it's like you want <laughs> yeah. to you want to take you're offering yeah. yourself away out of yeah, the pain yeah. you're offering the characters away yeah, out of the pain. pain yeah yeah and it is, I mean, anyone here who's, who's been in tremendous pain, you'll know you will pretty much do anything to get away from it. And so, so the idea of psychic pain and pain of the soul and what would you do to get away from that pain? And we, the great thing about the Gothic is that it's about sensation, right? So, and I was so keen to write a true Gothic novel, which is not nightgowns and maidens and villains. It's, it's feeling, it's Gothic feeling. And so I deliberately set out a book to write a book that would tug at the reader and really affect them. So the idea would be that the reader would be a character in the book, that they would be so tugged in and so watched that they would feel that Melmoth was watching them. Um, and uh, people can't actually finish reading it, and now I feel guilty about yeah. quite how scary it is. Um, <laughs> Not that guilty. No, though. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so it is, it is about pain, yeah. and, and um, I don't... I, You'll know why I don't want to say much about it, but, no. the, but you know, like the, the direct appeal yeah. 
to a reader's conscience is quite an important kind of part of the book, I think. And a, yeah, an important part of the Gothic tradition. generally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, it really is. Um, <sighs> right, I just did a lot of breather. Um, <laughs> right, okay, questions um, for, for Sarah. They can be theological, they can be moral. Um, they can be about the Essex They can be about painkillers. They can be about painkillers. She does sell them. I've got your uppers, I've got your downers. It's going um, to be a book of the week at Halloween, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. Yeah. So it's coming out in October and it's going to be on Radio 4 for Halloween. So. Oh my God, that is genuinely terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> I love that cackling. I can't wait. It's, it, is, it is very, very scary. For your next book, mm -hmm. do you think... I mean, you can't escape the Gothic because it's in you when you were born in the 1840s, but... Will you continue with that? Or will you I think of this book as being the last book in a Gothic trilogy. Right. And the, the, my first three books being playing with different types of the Gothic, so after me comes a flood, like contemporary psychological Gothic and then historical Gothic and now Gothic horror. Um, so I'm, with the book that I'm working on at the moment, I've taken out the form of the Gothic, so it's not consciously Gothic, but I'm still writing it. So I can't, wherever I go, there I am. Um, so it will doubtless have some kind of harrowing, <laughs> creepy scene in it somewhere. <laughs> God, okay. <laughs> and then I'll write a comment. <laughs> I have to tell you, I really do have to tell you, it is an incredible book. The questions that it poses are profound. The possibilities that it presents are disturbing, and it demands a great deal of you as a reader, but what she has done is incredible. So please join me in thanking Sarah Perry. <laughs> <laughs>